Please, congregation, turn your Bibles this afternoon to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, or read verses 16 through 34, in connection with Article 1 of our Confession of Faith and a new series through the Belgic Confession. Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. This is God's holy word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is, Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to their opagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that this divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word may bless it to our hearts as we meditate upon it this afternoon. Turn also in our Forms and Prayers books to page 153, 153 into Article 1 of our Confession of Faith. Article 1, the only God. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. Eternal, incomprehensible, 
invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. This the Church of Christ does believe and confess throughout the world. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've ever read the introduction to our confession of faith, and you've probably come to know that it wasn't written during a time of ease or prosperity for the churches. And you may know that the author of our confession, Gerard Bray, was not just some armchair theologian who in his spare time began to jot down a faithful summary of the Word of God. But rather, our confession was authored by Debray and adopted by the Reformed churches at a time when doing so threatened their very existence. Our confession was, was ironed out on the anvil of persecution. From the eyes of King Philip II, the Reformed churches were nothing but a band of rebels who despised authority, and so they were perceived as enemies of the throne, needed to be crushed and, and totally subdued. Now, of course, Philip's concerns are not grounded in reality. For Gator de Bray and the Reformed churches sought to make it perfectly clear to the king that they were law-abiding citizens who, who professed the true Christian religion according to the word of God. And in the letter they sent to King Philip, affixed to the Belgian confession, they sought to make that ardently clear, saying to the king, the petitioner signed their letter saying, O king, we are prepared to submit to you in all things lawful. But we will give our backs to stripes and our mouths to gags and our tongues to knives and our whole bodies to the fire before we turn our backs and renounce the truth expressed in our confession. Sadly, the cruel king was not satisfied. He was unmoved. And so scholars have estimated that over 100,000 saints gave their lives because they believed in their hearts and confessed with their mouths. The truths contained in this confession, which we so easily take for granted today. And yet, although the immediate purpose of securing freedom from persecution was not attained, and despite the fact that thousands sealed their faith with their very lives, by the grace of God, the work of Guido de Bray endured. When the political situation in the Netherlands finally changed, the Belgic Confession was, was gladly received by the Dutch churches and adopted by the National Synods. After some careful revision, it was adopted more finally and definitively at the Great Synod, the Synod of Dord in 1618-19. And to this day, the office bearers and faithful Reformed churches continue to subscribe to this confession, promising before God that they are persuaded that this confession is faithful, that they will diligently teach and defend all the doctrines contained within it. And to this day, we, members of Reformed churches, profess our faith, promising that that we likewise hold fast to this confession. And we do the same thing. We bring our, our children forward for baptism, as we heard this morning. We bring our children promising that we are persuaded that this confession is a, a faithful summary of God's word. All the, the doctrines of salvation are taught therein, and we promise to, to diligently teach our children this whole complete doctrine of salvation, promising to, to pass these precious truths down to the next generation. Because the saying is true, that it only takes a generation for the church to fall into apostasy. Of course, the Lord knows who are His. And yes, the Lord, we recognize, will always 
have for himself a people on the earth, as we confess in Article 27. But, but this saying has proven itself to be true time and time again throughout the history of the world. As many of you may already know, you need only return to the Netherlands where the state of the church is a far cry from what it was not so long ago. And so as we commit ourselves to holding fast to this confession, as we commit ourselves to to raising our children, this doctrine of salvation, we do well to to take heart this evening to those sobering words that we find in Judges chapter 2, where the Spirit tells us that after Joshua died, there arose another generation who did not know the Lord and who did not know the work that he had done for Israel. The failings of one generation is all that it took before the children of Israel no longer knew who God was, before the children of Israel no longer knew all the things that that God had done for them, bring them out of Egypt and, and through the wilderness and into the land of promise. And so the Spirit tells us there in Judges 2 that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they began to serve the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. After only one generation, the children of Israel began living like the children of the world, serving the gods of Canaan. May God grant us the grace that such will never be said of us or our children after us. But as we hold fast our confession, may he grant us the grace to be always ready to to give a good defense for the hope that is within us as we make our confession in a world that has wandered so far from the Lord and from the truth of his word. As P.Y.D. Young once said, each one who loves the truth of Jesus Christ and each one who has come to know that truth, which alone can set us free from sin and all its consequences, is under obligation to make this truth his own personal and precious treasure, witnessing to it in word and deed whenever the opportunity is provided. That's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 17. Here we find the Apostle Paul provoked and, and in great distress as he walks through the city of Athens, a city full of idols, a city entirely given over to idolatry. Being moved by his love for God and by his concern for the lost in the world, Paul proclaims the one true God. He, he cries out in the Areopagus, but therefore you worship as unknown. This I proclaim to you. He proclaims the one true God of the universe. He proclaims the only God of our salvation. And so as we work our way through this passage together, and we, as we consider the truth of our confession, I'd like for us to consider three things together this evening, noting, first of all, the world's confusion, and then second of all, the church's confession, and then finally, the Creator's character. In the context of Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul has been well-received in Berea, where the Jews received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures to see if, if Paul's message was true. But when certain Jews came from Thessalonica, they began to stir up and agitate the crowds that the brothers sent Paul away by sea, where he was taken as far as Athens. And that's where our passage begins this evening. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is, for Silas and Timothy at Athens... 
His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. As Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 1, the problem of man really boils down to this. In his sin and willful disobedience, man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to him because God has shown it to him. But although man knew God, he did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But he became futile in his thinking, and his foolish heart was darkened. Claiming to be wise, he became a fool. And he exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what the Apostle Paul sees all around him. As you may know from your study of history, Athens had been the, the great, the foremost city of the Greco-Roman world since the 5th century BC. Even after being taken over by the Romans, it retained much of its intellectual independence. And the city boasted of its rich philosophical tradition. The city boasted of its literature and its art and all its notable achievements in the cause for human liberty. In other words, the city of Athens was not so different from our North American world today which likewise boasts in its historical achievements, which likewise boasts in its cultural progress and its contemporary ideologies, which just like Athens thinks it has everything all figured out. And no doubt, Paul could have simply taken all this in. He could have walked about the city of Athens and simply taken in all the the tourist attractions, all the, the ancient buildings and ancient monuments which were unrivaled. And he could have taken in the the sites of the great Acropolis, the the town's ancient citadel. He could have sat in on the great debates by the great statesmen and philosophers of Athens. To quote one writer, he might have been spellbound by the sheer splendor of the city's architecture, history, and wisdom. And yet it was none of these things that struck him. Because first and foremost, the Apostle Paul saw was not the beauty of the city or the brilliance of the city but it's idolatry. As Paul walks about the city, he's not impressed by any of it, but he's oppressed by it all. He's oppressed because he sees this city so great in the eyes of man. He sees this city for what it really is. Utterly confused. Ignorantly blind. Submerged in idolatry. And he was provoked to the heart. The word in the Greek used here in verse 16 for provoke is a word that's elsewhere ascribed to the Lord himself. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is often used in association with the Lord's being provoked to anger when his people are given over to idolatry, when his people drag his name through the mud. This is what's going on in the heart of the apostle. Out of his love for the Lord and by the Spirit of Christ that's at work within him, Paul is is righteously jealous for the honor and glory of God's holy name. To quote one pastor, his abhorrence for idolatry arouses within him deep stirrings of jealousy for the name of God as he sees human beings so depraved as to be giving to idols the honor and glory which are due to the one true God and to him alone. We see the same thing going on in the heart of the prophet Elijah who 
who we'll see in a few weeks in our studies through Kings, is going to, to cry out the height of, of Israel's apostasy, saying, I, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken his covenant. They have thrown down his altars, and they have killed his prophets with the sword. This is the way the Apostle Paul is likewise going to speak to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11, where he'll say, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a, a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere desire and pure devotion to Christ. And something very similar is going on here in Acts chapter 17. I wonder, congregation, to what degree do you relate to the apostles' inward pain and horror this evening? Are you likewise this jealous for the name, for the honor, for the glory of God? Are you jealous for his name in such a way that it drives you and motivates you to, to live and to confess that we confess in Article 1 of our confession? And to live that confession not just here in the church, but also out there in the world, in the workplace. You used to see the achievements of the world and the thinking of the world for what it really is. As Paul surveys this city under the confusion of idolatry, the Spirit compels him to share the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, as we discover in verse 18. And so as he began to reason with the Jews in the synagogue and with the commoners in the marketplace and with the, the escapist Epicureans and the fatalistic Stoics, this was his goal, to cause them to, to see the error in their ways and to warn them. To warn them that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their idols and to place their trust in the one true God who made the world and everything in it, who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Because as Paul perceives these people are very religious, and as he confronts the confusion of the world, we're reminded, aren't we, that the same thing is desperately needed in our world today. Our world today desperately needs this kind of engagement. And as the Apostle Paul engaged the city of Athens, our world today needs the church, to believe in her heart and to confess with her mouth and, and to live in her life the, the truth of the word of God in every sphere. As one pastor says, there is an urgent need for more Christian thinkers who will dedicate their minds to Christ, not only as lecturers, but also as authors and journalists, as dramatists and broadcasters, as television script writers, producers, and personalities and as artists and actors who use a variety of art forms in which to communicate the gospel. All these can do battle with contemporary non-Christian philosophies and ideologies in a way which resonates with thoughtful modern men and women, and so at least gain a hearing for the gospel by the reasonableness of its presentation. This congregation is indeed our confession, that despite what, what the world would want us to think or believe, the Christian faith alone is is actually reasonable because our God is the God of reason, the God who, who created an, an orderly world and who impressed the gift of reason upon 
the heart of man, so that he became a living, moral, rational, living creature. And for this reason, the Apostle Paul is not ashamed to, to stand in the midst of the Areopagus and to boldly proclaim what he proclaims in verses 22 and following. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Well, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. For we are indeed his offspring. And being his offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an, an image or from the imagination of man. And what Paul proclaimed so long ago is precisely what the church of Christ confesses today. We live in the same world the apostle Paul lived in. And we live in, in a society that's every bit as, as given over to idolatry and submerged under idolatry as the Apostle Paul's was. We live in a world where what the early church father Augustine said is, is still true, that the heart of man was created for God, and so the heart of man remains restless until it finds its rest in him. For all men are seeking after God, says Bob Inc. But they do not seek him in the right way, nor in the right place. They seek him down below when he is up above. They seek him on the earth, but he is in heaven. They seek him in money, in property, in fame, in power, and in passion. But God is to be found in the high and holy places. And with those who are of a contrite and humble spirit, Isaiah 57, verse 17. But as Paul testifies in verse 27, says Bobbing, they do seek him. They they feel after him, all the while fleeing from him. They have no interest in the knowledge of his ways, yet they cannot do without him. They feel themselves attracted to God and at the same time repelled by God. And this is man's state of confusion. This, as another pastor, consists both of the greatness as well as the miserableness of man. He, he longs for the truth, but he is false by nature. He is born a, a son of the house, but as the prodigal son once did, he feeds on the husks of the swine in a strange land. As the prophet Jeremiah once lamented, he, he thirsts for water, as it were, but he forsakes the Lord, the fountain of living water, and he digs for himself broken cisterns that can hold no water at all. As John Calvin once said, his heart is a perpetual idol factory. And yet it is indeed in this world of idolatry, in the midst of the world's confusion, that the true church makes her confession. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths there is a single and spiritual being whom we call God. We believe in our hearts and, and confess with our mouths there is no one else like him in all the world. 
eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchanging, and so on. As Herman Bovink writes in his wonderful works of God, rather than, than waiting for, for questions he put to her as in the Catechism, in the Belgian Confession, the Church of Christ readily explains the content of her faith. She believes with her heart and she confesses with her mouth what God has to say to the church and to the world. And just as Paul begins here in verses 24 and following with the doctrine of God, so too we begin in Article 1 with, with the doctrine of God. But we do so recognizing that to quote Herman Bovink once more, the doctrine of God is at the same time the doctrine of salvation. For the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ, his Son, is what eternal life consists of. That's what Jesus said in John 17, verse 3. That this is eternal life, that they may know the Father and the one whom he sent. And so you see, as the Apostle Paul proclaims the one true God, he is proclaiming salvation. He is proclaiming concrete certainty in the midst of the world's confusion and uncertainty. He's proclaiming glorious salvation in the midst of, a, of the world's guilt and sinful misery. This he does by proclaiming the character of the Creator. For in contrast to the false ideologies of the Epicureans who said the gods are, are far off and aloof, and in contrast to the Stoics who said that the divine is simply impressed on creation, that they're one and the same in a, in a pantheistic way. The Apostle Paul proclaims the one true God, the, the creator who is yet distinct from the world on the one hand, but who also engages the world on the other, who rules over all things, supplying life and breath and everything. For although God is not dependent on anyone or anything, his independence in no way suggests that he is disengaged with the world. Not only does he give life to his creatures generally, we find here, but he also shows special interest in humanity, controlling the time and space in which they live. He created all things. He sustains all things. He rules all things. And this God does, we find in verse 27, in order to draw humanity into a quest to, to seek their creator, in order that they should seek him and perhaps find him and find their way toward him. For he is actually not far from each one of us. Sin, of course, as John Arstott alienates people from God, even as they grope after him. But it would be absurd to blame God for this alienation or to regard him as distant, unknowable, or uninterested. For it is not he who is far from us, but we who have gone far from him. And yet still in his grace and mercy and his infinite goodness, God warns fallen humanity. He, he, he reaches out to those who have gone far from him. And he extends to fallen humanity the, the call to repent and believe, as Paul goes on to say in verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And here in this call to repentance, we, we see that the harmony of God's attributes coming into view. Both his against sin on the one hand as well as his goodness towards those who repent of their sin on the other. 
And we see that God is not far from us, but He is very near. In His Son, in His goodness and grace, He has drawn near to us especially. And He has revealed Himself to us. He's revealed Himself to us in a way that that shows that He is the same today as He's always been. He is the eternal, immutable, and unchangeable one. The unchangeable one who is always and forever faithful to his covenant promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we see him? No. Can we fully comprehend him and and exhaust all that he is? No. But the Apostle Paul tells us here that we can know him. And we can take comfort in the knowledge that his attributes that this eternal, invisible, incomprehensible, and almighty one is surely on our side. And we can take heart in, in the plans that he has for us because he is completely and perfectly wise, as we confess. And we can rest in the knowledge that a day is coming when, when he will address every wrong that's ever been done against us and against himself, since he is perfectly just. And we need not be afraid because he is good. Because in his goodness, his justice against our sin has already been satisfied at the cross of Christ. In whom God became for us that overflowing fountain of all good. In him, the Lord Jesus Christ, God has said to us, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. For the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In him we have a well of joy and gladness that will never dry up. He is the overflowing source, the overflowing fountain of all good. And he is not far from any one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. He's not far from any one of us as we bring before him our our burdens, be they spiritual or physical. But he is ever so near to us. In him we live. In him we move and have our being. This is God's character. This is who God is. So very unlike us in his eternality and his incomprehensibility and immutability and infinity and might. And yet ever so near to us in his justice, in his wisdom, in his goodness and grace. This congregation is what we confess before one another and before a watching world. This is the confession that we pass on to our children. Keeping ever in our minds those words from Jeremiah 6.16 where... Where God said, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it. And then you will find rest for your souls. May God grant us the grace to walk in that way, to believe in our hearts and to confess with our mouths the truth of his word. And may we live in the confidence that he will surely Grant us the grace to walk in that way because he is truly good, the overflowing fountain of all good. Amen. Let us pray.
gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you and give you thanks that in your grace and your mercy and in your providence you have revealed yourself to us. That although we cannot comprehend you fully, we can know you as you reveal yourself to us in your Son. That we can take heart in knowing a God who is unchanging toward us and a God who is completely wise and just and good. Father, we pray that you would cause us not only to believe with our hearts and to confess with our mouths, but to live our confession in a watching world. That you would give us opportunity to to confess what we believe about who you are to a world that is without hope because it is without God. Father, we pray that you would bless us, parents, all that we need to pass the truth expressed in our confession on to our children. That we would not be ashamed to stand in the old way and to walk those ancient paths in the truth of your word. Father, we pray that we would not take for granted the truth that you've passed down to us as a congregation of the Reformed heritage. We give you thanks, Lord, that none of us here have had to lay down our lives for the truth expressed in our confession. But we thank you, Lord, for the grace and for the strength of your spirit that you gave to our spiritual forefathers who are willing to do that very thing, whose backs were torn apart by stripes, whose tongues were cut from their mouths because they confessed what we confess. Lord, we pray that you would grant strength to our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who share our confession. That they would with the same boldness confess the full truth of the scriptures. Knowing that even if they die, it is gain. We pray, Lord, that you would indeed write these truths upon the hearts of our children. That they would find great joy in learning the truth of your word. And that when the catechism season begins again, they would not begrudge learning the catechism and learning their memory work and learning the truth of the scriptures, but they would see it as a great privilege to know you as you've revealed yourself to us. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For a song of response, let's stand to sing Psalm 113, selection B. Praise God, O servants of the Lord. We sing hallelujah, he is good. Psalm 113, selection B, all the stanzas. (laughs) 